Old Testament account of Ruth. And uh, Ruth happens at the time uh, of Israel's history, known as the Judges, so it's kind of early uh, in the history of the Old Testament. Um, and it's a remarkable story where uh, we get a chance to zoom in on what's happening uh, in a very, very close and intimate way between um, just one family, the people of one family, and what God's doing in that time. Um, we've talked about this before. Ruth is the uh, ancestor of King David. And so what ends up happening is after this time of judges, David becomes king. And then uh, we pick up with a history that uh, we're a little bit more familiar with. What we've got going on in the book of Ruth, in chapter 1, we see Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi come back from a foreign land, having lost their husbands. And so they are full of grief, desperation, and need, tremendously needy people. And they come back to the town of Bethlehem where they begin to get oriented to the community or dependent upon other people just to eat and for their livelihood. And so in chapter 2 of the book of Ruth, we see Ruth and Naomi begin to get oriented in the community. At the end of chapter 2, this is where we've, uh, we came from most recently, uh, we have um, Ruth begin to devise a plan that she tells us in chapter 3. is basically go to the threshing floor where Boaz, your closest relative here in town, has been doing his work, go to him in the middle of the night, lay down next to him, and he'll tell you what to do. And that's where we're going to pick up today in the book of Ruth. And before I read the passage, um, because I assume there's not many uh, farmers here with us this morning. There's a few. We've got a few farmers in the church, a few gardeners. Um, uh, we're going to be talking about what's happening at a particular period of time in a farm community. So some time has elapsed from the last bit of... Uh, the book of Ruth that we've been looking at. There used to be uh, a time for harvesting things. And if you remember, Ruth was picking up what was left over after folks went through in the harvest. Now it's time for something called threshing, where you take the, uh, the matter that you picked up, okay, the stuff with the seeds on it, and you beat it, and the seeds fall off, and you can make bread from that. So they can get the corn uh, from uh, the, the uh, sheaves that they've gathered up together. And that's where we are today. I was thinking today, I have, you know, last time I had a farmer in my heritage was my great-grandfather. So it's been a long time. Um, folks in my family pretty much were steel workers, coal miners, things like that. So they were industrial people from the Northeast. Um, I have a memory as a kid, the closest thing I can think of in my heritage about stuff like this, other than, you know, just taking stuff out of the garden as a kid at the end of the season was um, leading up to the season of Lent in my tiny little Episcopal church growing up, we would have, uh, on the Tuesday before Ash Wednesday, we'd have something that we would call Fasnacht Day. Okay? We have this German heritage deal going on in my tiny little Episcopal church, and what would happen is all the women of the church would not go into work that day, and they would all get together in the church basement smoking cigarettes and, f- and frying dough in deep fat. And I can remember this haze. A couple, of, a couple of you folks might remember things like this. I can remember this haze in the church basement, this commingling of cigarette smoke uh, and then the burnt stuff coming off the fryer. And what these women would do is they would fry rolls of dough. And I remember as a little kid rolling up the dough into just sort of golf ball-sized pieces, 
And you give them to the ladies, they drop them in, they fry them, and they put them in old sunbeam bread bags. And the people at church would come by and pick up their bag of fried dough, and they would eat it that night before the fast of Lent that would begin the next day. Um, so, but it was one of those things where my church, I didn't know the people at my church. I found my church a little scary at times. I was distant from the people of my church, but things like that were sweet memories because everything would stop and we'd come together. We'd do something around food, do something around making things, do something around sharing things together. And so this threshing floor event is a lot closer to something like that. So what would happen is... The people would bring the sheaves of the things of the harvest into the threshing floor all day long. All the women, all the children, all the men would be involved in beating down uh, the, the vegetative matter to get the seeds and the corn off of it and to gather it up. And then the women would go home and take this back into the village. And the men would stay there at night and they'd have a party and they would dance and they would actually sleep there on the threshing floor. Because they had to secure the property, right? To keep thieves out at night. So these are the sort of things that are going on at this time. When we pick up this scene, when Ruth goes to the threshing floor, it's after a day's worth of work. And Boaz is sleeping on the threshing floor. And this is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk... And his heart was merry. He went to lay down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I, Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. And Lord, today we thank you for your word, and we thank you the way your word makes it clear who you are and who we are. We ask that you would open up our hearts and our minds to you this morning. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We started to touch on this last week. So last week when we said that Naomi had a plan for Ruth that was to go to the threshing floor, here we pick up Ruth has already gone to the threshing floor. We started to talk about what exactly Ruth would be risking by going to the threshing floor. And we said that Ruth certainly, she could risk some things in her relationship with Boaz. She's certainly risking being taken advantage of, right? Here it is, a young foreigner, a young woman, going and putting herself in a situation where she's making herself available to Boaz, one of the men of the community. We also see that she's risking here rejection. 
She could be turned away. And then there, would where would Naomi and Ruth be? Other things that we know that she's risking is her reputation. And we'll see this as the story develops. Boaz becomes concerned for the reputation of Ruth. Should she be discovered going there or at the feet of Boaz by another person? What would people think? And just traveling, even though this is a small community of Bethlehem, just traveling there, she's putting herself at risk. I was talking with one of the women here at the church that grew up in rural Africa this morning. Um, when we were talking this morning about how this woman often would take a trek, a traveling, uh, take a, a holiday to go and to visit with her grandmother to make sure her grandmother was doing okay, making sure her grandmother had water and food to eat, that she was well taken care of. And this woman was explaining to me that when she would take that trip, oftentimes she'd go to sleep in the bush and she'd make sure she had sharp objects, you know, kind of at the ready just in case something came in the middle of the night, right? An animal or a bad guy. That's more of Ruth's situation too, right? And I want us to be able to get in the mindset of how perilous this whole situation is for her. Um, Ruth does what her mother commands in verse 6. And then she goes to Boaz. She uncovers his feet and lies down. Now, it's interesting to note, it's important to note this morning, Boaz does not think about this, uh, this act of uncovering his feet and lying down when, when, when Ruth is discovered as a promiscuous act at all. That's not the way he thinks about it. In fact, immediately upon discovering her, later on we'll see that he t- blesses her. He call, invokes the name of the Lord. Also, he recognizes her as a worthy woman. So these things show that Boaz doesn't think about her being untoward at all. Maybe bold, but not untoward in any sort of way. Yet this action is super, super, we have to recognize this, very intimate, is very intimate, and it is very, very humble too. Um, I'm reminded of um, New Testament stories, right, where we talk about um, people getting close to feet, like the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7 at the house of Simon, who anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and cried on his feet. It was a weird sort of intimate time that really put off Simon the Pharisee. This would be another intimate action, getting close to the man's feet. But it would also be a humble action that she would go to the place where she would put herself at his feet and therefore at his disposal as well. I think about Jesus washing the feet of his disciples in John chapter 13 as well, and how intimate that was, and how disorienting that was, that the master was washing the feet of the disciples too. The one thing I don't want us to miss that she's risking this morning, and I think is really helpful for us as we continue to move through the story, is um, what I want to just call the risk of humility. The risk of humility, that when you humble yourself in a relationship, what exactly you are risking and feeling and needing in those kinds of situations. This, um, this past week, my son uh, Coleman is home from college, and we did something that we like to do, which was uh, to play, get our guitars out and play at, at a local open mic together. And these things are always, like, super interesting. So uh, we call up the place where we're going to play the open mic, and we're like, what if we want to play the open mic, what time do we need to get there, and what do we need to do? So I'm asking... What are the rules? Tell me the rules, uh, because my son and I are coming over with our guitars, and we got three songs we want to do. Seems straightforward. And the woman on the other end of the phone says, we don't have sign-up until 6.30. 
So if you come at 6.30, you'll be at the front of the list, which I think is okay. That, that I, makes sense to me. That's what I'm going to do. So we go over for dinner early at the place where there's the open mic. And when we show up at 6 o'clock, there's already eight people on the list. And I said, well, what's the deal? I thought that if I show up at 6.30, that's when the gate opens. And she says, oh, yeah, we'll put you on the list. Don't worry about it. And I noticed she puts us on the list, but she puts, there's eight people on the list, and then she puts us on the list, and then she adds a couple other spaces above our name too. And so I'm like, what is the deal? We came here at the time. You told us we we're going to play the open mic. And all of a sudden, there's all these old guys before us that obviously are insiders at this pub. They know exactly what they're doing. And we actually saw a young woman from Nashville come in. And I'm like, oh, okay, they're going to put this lady on the list. She comes in. They put her at the top of the list. I'm like, what do you have to do to get on the list? <laughs> Completely disoriented. So what happens inside of me? Okay, this is a very simple, common situation. I think about what do I need to do to assert myself? Do I need to go up there and erase that lady's name and put my name up there? I just got bumped up and I just bumped myself up. Or you think about, forget about this. Let's go home. You know, I don't have time to spend three hours behind all these other people. So you start to, all these dynamics start to happen. That's a very, very common way that we have to deal the risk of, of having to humble ourselves and navigate things in relationship. What if the stakes are higher? What if you're a foreigner, as some of you are in our midst this morning, that you have to come into a situation and we do church in a very different way that you do in the country you grew up in? What do you, what if you have to humble yourself because of your race or your language or your marital status or your age, right? The stakes become even higher. Well, Ruth is contending with all of those sorts of things too. Um, we have opportunities to humble ourselves in relationships all the time. In fact, the church doesn't work unless we do that. Our relationships, a marriage doesn't work. You know, being a kid or being a parent or being a grandchild doesn't work unless you get into this mode of humbling yourself before other people. And you begin to deal with, am I going to be overlooked? Am I going to need to take charge of this relationship? So all these dynamics are certainly happening all the time. Great quote from Andrew Murray from his famous book about humility. Murray says, men sometimes speak as if humility and meekness would rob us of what's noble and bold and manlike. I know that's how I feel so often the time, even at that open mic that's what I was feeling. Don't steal from me, right? That's my, that's my gut reaction. Oh, that all would believe that this is the nobility of the kingdom of heaven, that this is the royal spirit that the king of heaven displayed. In humility, we have an opportunity to identify with the one who humbled himself for us. Let's press further into the passage. So what exactly is Ruth requesting here? Okay, there's a lot of debate about this. <laughs> it's such a weird passage in a lot of ways. The going and the intimate uncovering of the feet, the positioning of the single woman next to this man. Um, what exactly is she requesting? Basically, what Ruth is saying is making it absolutely clear that she is available for marriage. What she's trying to do here is make it crystal clear that not only does she have a need, but she has uh, personally, willfully available to be married at this point. She does this in a couple of key ways. One is the way she calls herself in verse 9, your servant. And what does it say there? Um, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. What she's doing here in calling herself a servant, she's called herself a servant in the past. But in the past, that was just basically like worker. Okay? 
Here, when she calls herself servant, it's more like handmaid. It's like saying, hey, I am a part of this clan and this community now. And so she is elevating herself as someone who is marriageable. That's what she's doing in that. But the second clue is in this whole idea, when she comes near to Boaz and he wakes up, um, she makes the request that Boaz would spread his wings over his servant. Now, it's interesting in Ruth doing this, or if you remember what Naomi said to Ruth, was just go, he'll tell you what to do. This is Ruth taking quite a bit of initiative. Ruth has prepared a speech here. She isn't just going there, sitting silently, waiting to be told what to do by Boaz. She has something that she specifically wants to say about the nature of her request. And so she says, spread your wings over me. Now, where did she learn this whole idea of wings and what does wings mean? Well, there's some places in the Bible. There's like, I think there's like 34 places in the Old Testament where they use this word wings a lot. Sometimes it means garment or skirt or clothing, right? But in every single one of these cases, it's a symbol for coming underneath someone's protection and entering into a certain high-level kind of relationship. Now, she learned this from Boaz back in chapter 2. Boaz said to Ruth, when he spotted her among the very first times, he said that he saw how Ruth had loved her mother-in-law and what she had sacrificed to come to Bethlehem and the way she was humbly plugging into the community That gets Boaz's attention, and he says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Ruth is wise and astute, smart about relationships. She has heard Boaz use this term, wings, before. And it was a way that he had said, we are all doing this under God's hand and protection, love. That grabbed Ruth in a way. And now she repeats those same phrases back to him. Certainly she heard this from Naomi. Remember, she is just learning the Jewish faith. She is, for the very first time, coming in as a foreigner and trying to figure out, how do I make your people my people? How do I make your God my God? Teach me. So I imagine that when she's in the field gleaning. I imagine when she's in the house with Naomi, they're talking about this new God that she has submitted herself to and identified with. And Ruth says, we're under his wings. We're under his wings. Throughout the whole Old Testament, becomes one of those great images of the care and protection and magnitude of God's covenant. Um, One of the things I love about this church is we have a lot of people here at the church that are, uh, I would say, trying on the faith, the Christian faith, or for the very first time they're participating in a church um, and they're serious about it, right? They really want to learn what it means to follow Jesus. They want to know who this Jesus is and what it means to be related. What is the gospel? What is his grace? What does it mean to be identified as a disciple of Jesus Christ? And it's interesting, you know, as Shang and I get ready to teach this class, I guarantee that one of the conversations I'll have as we go through and we, re- we study the Bible together, I'll have conversations with somebody in a class that will be like, I love the way the Apostle Paul put that, that totally describes what I have been trying to say about what I'm learning about God. All of us 
We need ways, faithful ways to describe the action of God in our lives and what's happening in our hearts and our souls. It's hard to talk about the soul. It's hard to talk about what God is up to because it's so giant and powerful. So when, when Ruth hears about coming under the wings of God, she says, that describes it. That's a lot of what's happening here, too. Great picture I just want to read from Ezekiel 16.8. Now, this happens much later, but it shows the way the language is used in the Scriptures. When God himself talks about his intention to take a people for himself in a covenant marriage relationship. And he says, when I pass by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. This whole idea of coming together in covenant relationships draws its whole power and meaning from the way that God set out to find a people for himself. And he saw us in our need. He saw that we were cut off. He saw that we had made ourselves foreigners. He saw that we were naked and ashamed. We needed the covering that only the living God could provide. And so he covers a people for himself. That's what we're starting to see here, too. I heard a great story from one of you this week about um, this whole idea of being under, uh, in the safety of the covering of another, uh, as it were, kind of coming under wings. A father and his son um, were at home one night, and uh, the son has this incredibly, like, giant stuffed animal, the kind of like you you win at the kind of the state fair or something like that, one of those sort of giant stuffed animals that are bigger than the kid. And so um, the kid was scared, uh, laying in his bed and alone at night. And so when the dad goes in uh, to check on the kid who's frightened, he sees that the kids place the stuffed animal kind of like over his whole body and is, is crying under the stuffed animal. And uh, so the dad kind of moves the stuffed animal over, gets in bed with the kid, hugs the kid, you know, and tells him, hey, everything's going to be all right. And the kid calms down. The kid says to the dad, can I tell you a secret? And dad's like, absolutely. You know, my son was telling me a secret. I'm all ears. I'm listening. And the, and the kid said, sometimes when I'm afraid, I believe that the stuffed animal is you. Isn't that a cool story? I'll tell you why this is such a moving and touching story to me. It shows that um, the way that we're made to deal with our vulnerability, our fears, and even deeper, our nakedness and shame and sin, is we need a person. We need something that is alive to come and cover us. Even the kid that's kind of hiding under the stuffed animal, the way he makes it work is he knows he's got a real dad. And what he's longing for is for the real dad to get into bed with him hug him and say, things are going to be okay. There's a reason why that rings so true to us, is that is exactly the way that we are made in our relationship with God. We require, because of our need, we need God to come in and provide a covering for us that only a perfect and divine being could provide for us. Do you know this morning that God covers you? The sins you know, the sins you don't know. The shame you feel, the shame that you can't even articulate. The fears that you feel, 
that the God that Ruth is discovering is the God that we've been gathered to worship together today. He called us out of the snow and ice to gather us in a room. And this is a meeting with the living God who has made a way so that our sin and shame is covered. That just as real as you're looking at me and I am looking at you, we face the living God. And he says to us, because of the work of Jesus Christ, you are covered. And sometimes I pretend that some other thing, like my stuffed animal covers me. It doesn't. My heart longs for the covering that only God can provide. And that's what Ruth is learning here. Well, Ruth saying this to Boaz is part of what elicits Boaz's tremendous response here. It's not just a marriage proposal. But if you notice, because he invokes the name of the Lord, Boaz is beginning to discern something quite powerful here. First of all, there's the initial response, which we've got to deal with for a second. So he, you know, his feet are uncovered. He wakes up at midnight. The dude is terrified. It says... The man was startled and turned over. And there's a bunch of, you know, work done on what this, what's exactly happening here. I think it probably is at least as simple as the reason why he's sleeping there is to guard the goods anyway. So these men sleeping on the threshing floor are there just in case somebody tries to steal the grain. So immediately we know he's on the defense. Who are you? Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. He doesn't cast Ruth out at that point. She has identified herself. He knows immediately who she is. He does not take advantage of her. He sees God at work. When he looks at Ruth in the dim light, and she has identified herself, and he remembers all the things that she has done up to this point, and she makes that plea that uses that code word wings, covering that reminds him that God is operating in this relationship and in this town and in this nation. He's just stunned by Ruth's beauty and humility at that point. And he says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. He's immediately reminded of Yahweh, his Lord, the living God, who's in control of all things. Um, Sometimes, I have to say, though the occasions be rarer than I would like, sometimes I am with a person. And have you ever had this experience that you are with someone and you go from just dealing with the person just kind of in the moment and you look through that person into glory? Times like when I am with my wife and kids and I am for a reason that I cannot articulate. I am struck that I am so blessed to know them. Times when, as an elder, I'm serving the Lord's Supper, and y'all are coming forward to take the supper, and I look at face after face and soul after soul, and I see the faithfulness of God from generation to generation, and all of a sudden, I feel too weak for the task of handing out the bread, of handing out the cup, which is as I am. I look through it and I say, oh my goodness, I think I've just seen God operating here. I felt it as we sang this morning, 10,000 Reasons. And I looked across the room and I saw the saints joined in singing to the living God, saying we don't have enough years and we've got a million reasons to praise you. So I'm going to just get started. And I felt that, right? I felt confirmed in that, that I was doing what was the most important thing in the universe at that moment. I believe that Boaz feels something similar at that point. 
But she comes to him and she invokes the word wings and she pleads with him, take me under your covering and into your house and I'm marriageable. Take me into your family and reinstate me and my mother-in-law and my cut-off people. Bring me in. And he's pleased. He's stunned. It's interesting, too. He sees himself very faithfully at that moment. She gives him a lot of authority. And look what he does. Well, he talks about his age. Hey, there's better-looking redeemers out there. Are you sure? <laughs> you know, there's younger guys out there. Both You can pick a poor guy better-looking than me. There's all these things he starts to wonder about, but he also not just recognizes the humble side of who he is. He also recognizes the dignified side of who he is. He's like, I'm part of this community. So what we need to do, that just as the people that sit at the gate into the townspeople, literally those in authority, have recognized you to be a worthy woman, what we need to do is we need to check with those same people tomorrow. And there's a person who's actually a closer relative to me. We have to get his okay on this. If he wants to take you, then fine. But if not, we're going to move ahead on what we believe God's starting here tonight. Um, I was talking with somebody this week who was tremendously troubled. And um, as I talked to this friend of mine, who was so, so deeply disoriented and troubled by hard things going on in his life. Um, as we talked, I noticed a couple things about him. One is, he could, it was possible for him, um, as we talked, to locate who he was with respect to the living God. He's like, I know who my God is, and I know that Jesus forgives me. Okay? That's a great starting point. He also was able to say, I know who I'm related to. I know who my family is, I know who my wife is, and I know that they love me. Pro tip is in counseling people, if, they, if someone can locate themselves in relationship to who their God is and to who the people who love them are, who their church is and their community, that's, that probably means they're going to be all right. Think about yourself. When you start to get discouraged, depressed, disoriented, it can be a blessing to kind of locate yourself again under God's hand and authority, under his saving grace, under his sustaining grace, and with respect to the people that love you again. This is also happening for Boaz. Ruth's humility in coming to him, Ruth's faithfulness, her recognizing the wings of God and who the Lord is, it humbles Boaz in turn. And Boaz is stunned. He sees a pattern of kindness in Ruth. He sees a kind of loyal love that only comes from God. So when he says, the kindness you showed to your family, to your mother-in-law, unbelievable. And this kindness now, unbelievable. He sees her worth and her humility towards him and a kind of strength. And this word worth is, it's, it was used earlier, Boaz, to say that he was a warrior. Well, the people view Ruth as a warrior of types as well, too. They see she's substantial as a woman. Her character is godlike. And so he sets out to redeem and take a vow, and as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. I can't imagine what it would be like that night for Ruth to close her eyes and rest. Um, Ruth... Uh, has had a hard life. At a young age, she's lost a lot. 
She's identified herself with a mother-in-law that has not always been easy, as we have read about. She's a foreigner. I don't know what she thinks about the language and the customs, um, but these are now her people. And in Boaz's wonderfully gracious commitment to her to do things right and to do things in the name of the Lord and to take her into his family, I can't imagine that as she shuts her eyes that night, there is a deep, deep rest that she has not experienced in quite some time. I think about, too, one of the theories about the book of Ruth is that it was written and then circulated in David's kingdom, the ancestor, right? And it was to show how God has been operating all the time. Remember, this is the time of judges, and everybody's doing whatever is right in their own eyes. They do whatever they want to do. And yet, in this very intimate picture, we see that God is faithfully at work, that the line of Messiah was almost snuffed out. I mean, just another way you could think about it. There are very few people here that bow the knee to the living God. And in this simple act of humility and humble response, too, we get a picture that God is being faithful all along and he's preserving a people for himself. Just as we close, I just want to talk about, um, again, we look through the actions of Boaz, the actions of Ruth, and in this account, God's op- God is silently operating here, whose name is being um, invoked, but we don't see God except um, by faith and in the actions of these people. I want us to be reminded of the faithfulness of our God at this point. I've already talked about, do you know how God has covered you? I want to re-ask that again. Do you know how God has brought a people for himself under his wings by providing a kinsman redeemer who not only would come in and uh, start a relationship, but would, would take our place and turn aside the wrath of God, providing a kind of safety that only the living God could provide? There is someone who has risked everything. That is Jesus Christ, our true kinsman redeemer. Jesus has risked everything, taken the ultimate humble place, as the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, taking the lowest place of all to serve us, that we might have the place of love and privilege and security and grace that belong to the sons of God. And we see how Jesus has come to us that humbles us in turn. We're covered, we're changed. Do you see how in this simple story of Ruth and Boaz, we have a picture of the humiliation of our God and how that changed everything for us? There's a great quote from Augustine. It's in the front page of your bulletin too, but I'm just going to read it now because I think Augustine captures the dynamics of knowing God and how that enables us to humble ourselves and love others as well. Christ came chiefly for this reason, that we might learn how much God loves us and might learn to the end that we begin to glow with love of him by whom we were first loved. That that whole idea of a heart set on fire by the gospel, by the love of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to show us the way. Jesus didn't come to teach us the way. Jesus came to be the way and to show the very heart of God for his people, chiefly for this reason, that we might know how much God loves us. Jesus didn't have just information for us. Jesus came to demonstrate the love of God for a people. And we begin to glow with the love of him by whom we were first loved. And so might love our neighbor at the bidding 
and after the example of him who made himself our neighbor by loving us. Let's go into the Lord and let's pray right now. Lord, we thank you for the way that you have loved us and taken us under your wings. Lord, when we were at our most desperate need for covering of guilt and shame, you provided that. Lord, I thank you for the way that uh, you have been utterly faithful to your promises to us. And you have made us your own. Today, as we continue to worship, we can truly say that you're ours. We are yours. Lord, I pray for my friends here. I pray that they would know the covering of the Lord is grace towards us all. And that we would be enabled to love our neighbor as ourself in light of his great love towards us. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.